My guest on this podcast is a former banker and fellow of the Harvard Kennedy School. He's the director of programs at a Rwandan nonprofit development finance firm which promotes financial inclusion for low-income clients. I'm Andy Lemasugu, and African Tech Roundup's seven-part deep dive into the progress being made around advancing entrepreneurship and job creation continues with an episode that's chock full of trench-level insight covering everything from the challenge of selling financial services incumbents on innovative development finance approaches to the need to induct open banking policy. Thank you to Spark for being the presenting partner of this series. Spark is a Dutch NGO that's creating jobs for young people in fragile regions of North and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East by boosting entrepreneurship, employability and higher education. To learn more about Spark and the opportunities they're creating, visit spark.ngo. That's spark.ngo. This podcast series was taped at the fringes of Spark's seventh annual Ignite Conference in Amsterdam and is an independent African Tech Rounder production. The opinions expressed by me, your host, and those of my guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the presenting sponsor, Spark. Hello, I'm Jean Bosco Yachu, Director of Programs at Access to Finance Rwanda. I think f- a few years ago, I, I made what I call 360-degree turn, moving from commercial banking to development finance. Why? Because there are so many people that are unbanked, so many people not using financial services. So we are here in this space to make sure that those billions of people that are out of the financial sector are included. Is there a difference between development finance, as you think of it or define it, and the more derogatory notion of foreign aid? It's quite different. So we believe that every person has the ability to save, to open an account and operate it and get a small loan. So we don't, we have seen people saving, low-income people saving, uh, what, like quarter a dollar on a weekly basis. We believe that they are economic agents like any other uh, that we have, and we believe that they have the right to have access to financial services as any other person. So it's not aid. It's actually providing structures that work for them so that they can become active agents in the economies that we are in. And who do you see as the primary recipients of the work you're doing or the primary beneficiaries of the work you do? So the primary beneficiaries are not the abject poor. It's what we call low-income people. Low-income people, they earn something. They're actively uh, productive and they can have an income. Small it is, but it's an income. So those are the ones that we want to say they should be included in the financial systems so that they benefit like any other. So there's this massive scramble to promote financial inclusion on the continent right now. What do you make of it all? What are you a fan of and what are you worried about? Financial inclusion, I think it has been a movement for the last decade. And uh, everyone wanted uh, the low-income people to have an account, to have a saving account, to access a microcredit. To bet their money and, of course... Um uh, put themselves in a spiral of debt they can never uh, leave. But yeah, that's just part of it. 
<laughs> yes, that's uh, being very cheeky, but 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 there's a concept we call responsible lending. So we we don't get people into over indebtedness, which is which is doing harm rather than doing good. So we well, we tend to avoid that. So whatever we do, we do it responsibly. So what we are saying is that those people that uh, can access financial services should. And that's what we have been doing. But for the last decade, that's what we've been doing. But this, going forward, we are looking at a new concept, which is what we call meaningful financial inclusion. We want financial inclusion to transform the lives of these people. So you have an account, but for what? Is it transforming your life? Are you getting access to a loan? For what? Do you have better health, better education, uh, food on the table, and so on? So that's, are we creating income? So that's what we are moving towards. And which is actually creating more employment to the youth and women and people uh, who are marginalized in different parts of Africa. Do you feel empowered to set that agenda at your organization or is that agenda being set by third parties who might fund your initiatives? I think this is a gospel we have been preaching for the last uh, two years. And uh, most of the development partners have understood. So when you have a market systems approach, you must make sure that whatever you're doing is really improving the livelihood of the people you're supporting. So different donors have understood. It's an agenda that is shared. Uh, Access to Finance Rwanda is part of uh, a network of nine FSDs across sub-Saharan Africa. What's an FSD? Uh, financial sector depending trusts. So we have them across sub-Saharan Africa. And, and what we believe in is making sure that we transform their lives as we unlock finances to them. Please unpack this notion of a market approach uh, as you just referenced it. So the market approach is, is really not coming to a different group of people. You provide what they need, but rather you look at the ecosystem they're in, challenge or address the constraints within the ecosystem so that when you exit, the ecosystem can continue providing the service or the product that you have given sustainably. So letting market players to operate and you come as a catalyst to make sure that they function, systems function for the poor to be included in these economies. So the part of the question you didn't answer earlier is what aspect of this trend towards advancing financial inclusion might you be worried about or concerned about or keen to see change or improve? So I'm, I'm most worried about um, probably some of the players that are not embracing the market systems approach, which looks at the entire ecosystem and address the constraints. Because when you exit, you go with your intervention. So that's one. We still have a bulk of, of in, I mean, development partners that are doing that. And that's really a big problem. Uh, so the second aspect is we might be saying that, yes, we want to uh, improve livelihood through uh, financial sector development. But we need to be cautious that at every step that we are taking, we are indeed transforming their lives. And I worry if we don't achieve that, then we would be considered as useless in this domain. As a former banker, you must be keenly aware of the pragmatic capitalist requirements for economic progress to take place. I wonder what was most shocking to your system when you left the world of banking and approached this wild new world of... (laughs) 
<laughs> of development finance. I wonder what shocked you the most about you know, the world you were leaving behind and the world you now inhabit. To sum it, I think at the bank, uh, the commercial bank, uh, I used to tell people that I was using my head, not my heart. So this time I'm using both my head and my heart. So what it is? It is indeed uh, looking at the majority of excluded people across sub-Saharan Africa who are not part of the financial ecosystem. Why don't we serve them? Probably for selfish reasons, because serving some high net worth segments, I have enough margins, I have the right uh, return to the shareholders, then I, I, I just stop there. So this time we're saying, in this world of development finance, we're saying, no, you can't be sustainable if all these people are not included. And I think that's, that's what shocked me. That's, we have a different thinking that side, and we have another mindset this other side. So speak to a capitalist who doesn't quite see how self-serving adopting this mindset actually is. I, I think most of the capitalistic enterprises, they have what you call corporate social responsibility. I think they should move beyond that because those are mere donations here and there supporting a, a small cause and so on. I think they should understand that the low-income people are active agents in the economies we are serving. So can you actually get the right products and services and include them? Because you may not pro get profit for the first, second or third year, but sustainably after five years you get the right margins. And these people are what we call emerging middle class in the future. So if you don't serve them, tomorrow you won't get the right clients because you are building a loyal customer base over time because you are serving the low-income people. So that's very important for any capitalist that is thinking of investing. You need to make sure that you have services and products for that majority. How would you describe the relationship between the conversation we've had so far and the challenge in creating or the necessity for jobs? Serving as banks or any financial service providers, serving the high net worth or bigger SMEs, clearly might not be providing the right level of jobs that need to be created in these economies. So what I'm saying is that when you serve, I mean, you look at the small businesses across Africa, if you provide the right lending to them, they will be able first to take care of their families. They would be able to create, like, on average, four jobs within their villages per SME, which is quite critical. That's the critical mass you need if we are to create more jobs for the generation that to come. So I, th I think as we serve, we should be cognizant of the fact that the majority must access financial services for them to create the right level of jobs that are needed for the youth in Africa. You must have heard this argument that perhaps it's not for everyone to be an entrepreneur and perhaps it shouldn't be. I really believe that entrepreneurship will solve most of the problems that we have because an entrepreneur creates jobs for himself or herself but also for others. Number two, I think no one is born entrepreneur. Few might be born entrepreneur, but these are skills that you can acquire and apply them 
and build big businesses. So it's possible. So we've, we have examples. So I mean, most of the people that have progressed, they've either been coached by other entrepreneurs that were successful, or they were actually put into some structures that helped them, their entrepreneurship uh, uh, potential to grow and flourish to any, potential, any status they have now. So I believe that entrepreneurship is something that uh, should be promoted, should be supported, either by the public sector, but also the private sector, because that will solve most of the problems that we have, especially in Africa. So given your experience in various markets on the African continent and your, you know, your lived in experience as one based in, in Rwanda, what have you found to be the most critical gap in the everyday or average entrepreneur's profile? You know, the sort of gap that prevents them from accessing the finance they need uh, to grow their businesses or indeed become an employer of themselves and other people. So I would say, I would class these uh, constraints that they face in three ways or three components. The first one being on their side as entrepreneurs. First, they lack the skills that are required. I would say technical and business management skills. And that's really key. And, and that's what is required from different governments to really to support, provide business development services to them. Number two uh, is about really the spirit of innovation. I think they don't want to reinvent over time. They want to copy and pass and, and then do uh, whatever the normal things that others are doing, which is really lacking. And, and that's really a big problem. So Now, on the side of... Uh, uh, the public sector. I think in, in most African countries, we need to see government investing a lot into entrepreneurship. So coaching and making sure that they have seed capital. Whoever has a brilliant idea is supported to test the idea and get something. Uh, now, and then have tax policies that are conducive, have incentives for those entrepreneurs that are really flourishing. I just give you a case at hand. In, in Rwanda, we have a new uh, policy, made in Rwanda policy. So whoever is producing and inventing something in Rwanda has some incentives from the government, the public sector. Or you find that for the first two years of business, uh, you, are, you are not into the tax base, you are not paying. So you are, you are allowed to test and fail within that period. So which is, which is a good uh, kind of uh, move from the government of Rwanda. Now, when you move to the financial sector, the supply side, you find that banks normally do, don't understand. There's a mismatch. They don't understand these entrepreneurs that are startups or they're still small. So they want to require or prov I mean, require from them the same conditions that they place to medium enterprises or corporates, which is so bad. You need to understand them within their respect and what they can offer, learn with them, support them, collect information in their workplace and then support them as they are so, and grow with them. So, but most financial services providers, they don't invest in that. And that's where development partners will come and say, we want to bridge that gap and support the lender, support the entrepreneur, support the policy side to ensure that the environment is conducive for the, for the entrepreneur. Before we get back to the episode, allow me to tell you a little more about the presenting sponsor of this series. 
Spark is a Dutch NGO that's committed to building the capacity of local partner organizations and institutions in order to more effectively identify and meet the needs of the young people it's trying to serve. Now, since being founded by two Dutch students a little over 25 years ago, the organization has grown to deliver expert job creation services in 14 of the world's most conflict-affected regions, including Libya, Palestine, and South Sudan. To learn more about Spark and the opportunities they're creating, visit spark.ngo. That's spark.ngo. There's a move afoot to conscientize the NGO community around the world of the need to be relevant to the beneficiaries they're trying to serve. And I, I wonder how, how much energy you have to spend explaining what is relevant and necessary within context for the projects you know need to happen in your country and how many compromises you have to make on the basis of, well, the money's available, they want us to do it this way, I guess we'll have to do it this way for now. Uh, that's a very good question. I- indeed, it's, uh, it talks to our approach, I mean, our DNA as uh, a market systems approach. The way we implement our project, or the way we manage our project, we, it's, it's a style we call adaptive approach or management style, where actually the situation on the ground, the circumstances on the ground dictate what we do. And, and most of the stakeholders that we work with, they, they know that. So we say, if something changes in the market, then we should also change and adapt. And that has been, uh, for, for some players it's, or stakeholders, it's quite hard. They, don't, they want to do it the way they have been doing it. I just deliver and I go, but they don't look at the sustainable impact of this intervention. And that's what we are challenging. It's quite, uh, it's not easy, I must say. So it, it takes energy, it takes convincing, it takes influencing, it takes really a lot of effort to, to make everyone understand that you need to change approach and you need to support the right cause. And how long do you think before you don't have to look very far for the kind of partnerships you're currently sourcing from Europe, the US and other places like that? How long before we have a, a viable market of development funding to resource organizations like yours on the African continent? Now we, I mean, it's there's alignment of thoughts around, around understanding that uh, you might not get results this very year or within a specified period, but really when you leave, you have left behind you a legacy or a, an ecosystem that has been challenged and changed that will create results over a decade to come or for the next generation. So some funders, some partners have understood they have understood that you can't actually control the impact or the outcome of an intervention within a certain period. You might produce, you might reach 10,000 people this year or for the next two years, but really what you have built as a, within the ecosystem will impact the next generation, which would be millions and millions. And, and that's where we want everyone to shift to because you challenge or you address systemic barriers or constraints, rather than addressing and coming and providing the service. So address those barriers and then sustainably change the, the landscape. So it's not an easy sell, 
but most of the development partners are aligning to this fault. But this notion of shift the power, I feel, comes full circle if you can sell that, this thinking locally. What's the biggest barrier to selling this to local sort of private sector players, to local governments, high net worth individuals, to local societies? Moving out of the comfort zone is always hard. Huh? I just give you an example. When you want to convince a bank, a private commercial bank, to provide learning to smallholder farmers, it's quite a hard sell. Is it harder when that private commercial bank is an African bank? Yes, they don't even understand the context, and, and that's really bad. And, and yet you, you assume that they should be understanding the context and see this as an opportunity, but they don't see what we see. And that has been a challenge. And, and what the approach we take is always start with uh, the high-level strategic thinking and say, bring the board on board, bring the executive management on board to understand why they should shift to that particular segment. So after they have understood and they sign off, and we say we, we have what we call catalytic funding. So we say, well, we shall invest this much, and you need to invest this much. We test this model, we see whether it works, and we go together, we learn together. We test, learn, and then uh, scale. So I think that has been a good approach, but it takes time. You might find that that process to convince the board and the management takes one year. Yet in one year, your funders need results. So that becomes uh, an uncomfortable seat to be in, and, and that has been challenging. Separate from me the hype from reality as far as mainstream adoption of technology uh, within the context of delivering finance where it's needed. What are some of the trends to be excited about and what are the ones that might get a lot of airtime in places like Europe and elsewhere in the global north? But on the ground, because of your exposure, you realize that things aren't necessarily as, as relevant to, to market needs or as relevant to, to consumer needs as, as perhaps what's being sold. That's spot on. I'll just give you probably practical examples to illustrate this. I mean, you find that most of the economies in Africa are talking about cashless economy or cash light, I mean, to say it. But the population or the, the economic agents, are they ready? Or do you have the infrastructure required to, do, to be cashless? It's not there. Do you have the right mindset of your economic agents to move to cashless? It's not yet there. People are, but people are saying we have mobile, we have mobile penetration, we're ready. So it's, it's a journey. I call it a journey. It's not just a, a button where you click and then you have the results. So, yes, mobile penetration is high, but how many mobile accounts, mobile money accounts? There's still not many. Not many as phones or, or numbers. So what we are saying is, because it's a journey, let's take baby steps that are required for you to transition into cashless. I'll give you an example of most of the banks uh, and even the regulators in Africa, they, they are not willing to approve bricks and mortar branches. What they tell them, they tell any FSP to do what? To indeed deploy agency banking. But agency banking is a costly uh, channel as well. Now what we see is that most of the CEOs are saying, we can't share this network. 
Why do we invest in the infrastructure? Let's compete on value proposition rather than infrastructure, which is a mindset. A mindset shift indeed, because most of the times they were competing on infrastructure. Now it's on value proposition. So I like that. So what it is, like what we support, we say, well, let's support you to deploy a network of 10,000 agents or 50,000 agents, 100,000 agents. Everywhere it's plug and play. So you hook to it. Any citizen can get a service from any lender. So then there's competition on service and products. Interoperability. You can't talk about cashless if you can't move money from one platform to another or from one provider to another. And that's a problem. So we need to break those walls, ensure that the infrastructure is ready, the mindset is ready, the culture is ready to align to that goal. And that's what I call a mindset shift. Some of what you're mentioning to me counts as what I like to dub engineered frictions so i wonder like to what extent is the future we all dream about a matter of powerful people and organizations and legacy institutions allowing us to walk into that future versus the market or the the consumer base not being ready for it i would say that uh, the legacy systems or the incumbents in the markets might not take us there but the fintechs will. And I think that's where we need to provide them with the right uh, prerequisites. Uh, I would say that there's this concept about uh, open finance or open banking, open finance as a whole. I think we need to let the fintechs to hook to the data sets that are there or to the infrastructure that is there to have access to the clientele base because that's normally denied in this current age. So we need to have platforms that have open APIs uh, kind of policy where fintechs with innovations can plug and play and then have very productive or fruitful uh, kind of partnership between the incumbents with the new innovators, which are fintechs. And that will change the landscape and that will bring value to the, to the mass market. Given your exposure to employers within the context of the work you do, what would you say is the biggest challenge they have in helping to bring more jobs online? I think most of the entrepreneurs, they don't want to build businesses that are cross-generational. They build businesses for themselves. When they pass on, then even the, the son or daughter can't inherit that business, which is so bad. They should build businesses that are looking at three generations ahead. And that's very critical. When you build a business from that perspective, it will have potential to create more jobs. So that's one. But number two, let's move beyond boundaries. Our entrepreneurs are not looking beyond the markets that they have. They're not looking at innovative ways of serving the big market that is out there. And, and with that limited my thinking, I think you can't create more jobs. But also managerial capacities in terms of, yes, we have proven your business or your product or service, but how are you managing to be more efficient? Uh, and when I say efficient, really, that doesn't say that you want 
you are bringing technology, probably you won't employ more people. No, you still employ people, but in an innovative way and in a more productive way. And, and that's what we are looking forward to. So what's the big capitalist dream for an organization like yours? Or is there one? I mean, you mentioned uh, thinking with your head as well as your heart now. Does, does one cannibalize the other at some point? What does your work at scale look like? What's the big dream? So the big dream really is identifying sectors with high potential of creating more jobs in every country in sub-Saharan Africa. Then say, well, these sectors have potential. These sectors are competitive for you as an economy. And these sectors, uh, they have required prerequisite for you to excel and be, have a competitive advantage or comparative advantage. Now, after identifying those high potential kind of sectors, then we need to invest in them for them to be able to create the jobs that are needed. And, and I'll just give you an example for my country, Rwanda, where we look at agro-processing as a sector that is, has high potential to create more jobs, but also to, to drive export revenues. Now, looking, the second sector is light manufacturing. How do we substitute what we are importing with light manufacturing? We don't need to put up a big plant, but what are those units that will come and produce exactly what you are importing as a country? And those ones, they have potential to employ more people. You have a small light plant that might employ 200 people, 500 people in a row. So that's very important. And because you have a bigger market, I mean, it's of recent that we have signed the... Uh, the, the free trade area across Africa. So many countries have signed that. So it's, it's, it's high time now for economies to think, what are we good at? What is our comparative advantage? How do we deploy the right resources in those sectors where we have comparative advantage and create more jobs and serve these markets? Would the potato industry in, uh, in Rwanda be case in point? Yes, potato industry is there because, uh, I mean, we have a lot of potatoes. And most of the times when we produce, at harvest time, we are not able to even, I mean, kind of uh, store the overproduction that we have, the harvest we have. And that's really a big problem. We need to have chips, plants. So we have one already that has started. So how do we produce and deliver and store and to make sure that we are delivering or we are producing f for the mass market. So we shouldn't have excess yet the next door, the next, the, I mean, the, the country next door is starving. They need potatoes. That's not right. And that's where we are looking at. So what are those critical sectors that we can develop? We can uh, make sure we bring efficiency and the right resources so that we produce for the mass while creating jobs. And so I imagine you see your organization as a catalyst to this process. Oh, yes, yes. I, in, in fact, our organization, uh, and as I said, the entire network, we are looking at this. And, and we are glad to have partners who actually think alike and, and want to see more youth employed. We might even put in not only grants or technical assistance, but we want also to put seed capital catalytic funds to catalyze investors from abroad, FDIs, and, and that's really good. I recently learned that the IKEA Foundation actually owns IKEA, the business. I, I don't know if you knew that. And 
I'm just listening to you wondering if there isn't a way to safeguard the next generation of capitalist interests by having capitalist enterprise grow out of organizations like yours. Now, granted, IKEA didn't grow out of the foundation necessarily, but I think there's something to be said for for the role of of non-profit enterprises like yours setting the pace for even how business is done in pure capitalist terms. I, I think that's our role. That's our role. And, and, and those kind of enterprises that we are talking about, really, you f- look at them and you find that they will benefit more. So it's not benefiting one individual, but be it uh, providing jobs, it will be the mass. Ownership will be diversified. And that's very interesting. So I'll give you an example of uh, Unilever. They're working with uh, Wood Foundation across Africa in tea plantations. They have a model. It's a philanthropy, but they have a model where they come invest into a tea factory, and this tea factory is owned by the tea growers. And after seven years, they have invested in the right machinery, the right processes, the right quality. They start exporting with them. They push the, in, the factory to a very good level in terms of efficiency. Then they exit. They have recouped their investment. They leave the management and the equipment with the smallholder farmers with 100% ownership of the factory. Imagine. So they are getting jobs and they are getting dividends from the factory because it's theirs. So I think we need to bring those innovative models that benefit the mass. And... And I believe, yes, capitalists will still serve, but I think we, st- we need to create a second tier of organization, enterprises that are owned by the local guys, that are well-run, uh, that are professional, and that are efficient. Sounds to me like you're redefining terms like disruption and exit <laughs> in a way that I perhaps hadn't thought about before. Yes, exactly. I, th- I think... I think we, we need to enter this space, not to dwell there, because we are catalysts. We are, we are coming to, to challenge the ecosystem and make sure the systems work and exit. To self-disrupt almost. Exactly. I mean, even ourselves, we need to be disrupted for, for us to deploy the right models and the right approaches. And that's what is happening. Wow, Jean Bosco, it's been very uh, enlightening and uh, um, stimulating. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yes.